Hi, it's Beverly. Well, I think the day was World Indigenous Literacy Day, so it was a day of celebrating Indigenous literacy, ironically. And I want you to meet Dr Chelsea Bond. Mananjali and South Sea Islander woman, uh, born in Yagara country. My disciplinary background is actually in health um, and I trained as a community health worker. She's also a senior lecturer in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies Unit at the University of Queensland and a mother of five. So back to Chelsea's story about a Facebook post by the Queensland Department of Education and Training that she spotted on Indigenous Literacy Day. It featured a school principal, a white school principal, um, uh, surrounded by some Aboriginal children in traditional dance gear. The image was captioned. It had a quote from the principal who said, I always had a soft spot for the troublemakers, the misunderstood, the kid that everyone thought wouldn't make it. And uh, I'd seen this posted on social media that day and um, some Indigenous people were upset about the... um, insinuation being made about Indigenous children. And as I looked closer, I actually went, wow, there's my child. That's my son in that image. And what was that uh, discovery like? Well, it was really weird. I remember I was was, um, just... Initially, it was more shock and going, wow, that's my son. What's he doing there? And I don't even know this woman because she's never taught my child even. Now, Chelsea's son is actually very high achieving. In fact, she tweeted out a photo of his NAPLAN results as part of her response. And the thing about Chelsea is that besides being a university lecturer, she does radio, writes commentary pieces, and she's active on Twitter. So in other words, she had a platform and she knew how to use it. A lot of people I know did, like, well, they messed with the wrong mother here. So when she called out the Teach Queensland Facebook post online with the hashtag NotYourProp, it got media traction and results. There were tweets and replies, retweets, interviews and news stories. Most significantly, the post was deleted and she received a swift apology from the Queensland Department of Education and Training. The thing that I guess disturbs me a little bit about this is that um, it's because of my privilege that this was called out. Um, Had I not been an academic at a university, would I have been heard? It shouldn't matter what mum does. But it does, doesn't it? Those children should not have been placed in that situation regardless and we should be equally appalled whether mum's a university academic or on Centrelink. It shouldn't matter. I think the other issue for me is that... um, people don't get the significance of representation um, and how that then plays out in reality. And so it's not just about good people or bad people and good representation and bad representation. These racialized logics are at play every day for us as parents of Aboriginal kids that we have to navigate all the time and it's frustrating. So now that time has passed, what does Chelsea think about the incident? Well, this wasn't about my child and defending the capabilities of my child or the other children and their parents that were in this picture. It was to call out and name um, the ways in which white people are thinking about both themselves and others and how they position themselves in these stories. We're not just a prop. And blackfellas have long been used as props in this country a lot, for a long time. We've been put on postcards and tea towels and all that kind of stuff. Um, and now we're props in even in what supposedly emancipatory agendas for us, but that aren't, that still frame us in that same kind of way. I'm Beverly Wang. And oh, how I love that theme music because it means that season two of It's Not a Race is on. 
And that story from Chelsea Bond brings together so many of the threads we're exploring this season. In these first two episodes in particular, we're looking at storytelling. Because really, stories are the basis for how we understand the world. They're how we construct our ideas of ourselves and others. Anita Heiss is a lifetime ambassador for the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. Here's what she thinks. It's not rocket science, you know. Brown kids need to see brown kids on the page if we want to encourage them to read. It's no different to saying young girls need female heroes and boys need male heroes and strong role models. It's exactly the same thing. And we're in a new space and time now to what it was like when I went to school, where we had, you know, what Katie did next and the Trixie Belden series and so forth. And there was no children's literature that had, you know, Aboriginal kids in it at all. More from Anita Heiss later. And here's what students at Heather Hill Primary School told our producer Leona Hamid when she paid them a visit. My favourite part about reading is that sometimes when I'm reading, I could like picture it in my mind and, and then it becomes a movie inside my head. And I like how uh, sometimes if it's fantasy books, I can let my mind go wild. The Patchwork Bike. And who's it written by? Maxine Belber Clark. This is the village where we live, inside our mud four walls home. These are my crazy brothers. And this is our fed up mum. But the best thing of all in our village is me and my brother's bike. I've got the book called Augie and Me. It's about a boy named Augie Pullman and he has facial disorder. Augie is not afraid of himself. He is different, but in the inside he might be the same as other children. I like it because it's funny. I like it because then it gives me ideas on if I want to make my own book. I am Kendrick. Uh, I am eight years old. And what book have you got? What's the title? Top Top. Is it your favourite book? Yes, because I like the Aboriginals books. So stories are important. Are we in them or have we been left out? Who do stories belong to? And what do they say about us? And taking that further, how do we reclaim our stories? You're going to hear from two writers. Anita is one of them. They've both made very deliberate choices to claim narrative space in the mainstream. That's chiclet and young adult fiction. Hi, my name is Randa Abdul-Fattah. I'm an author and an academic, and I write books for young people. So far, Randa's written 11 YA novels, starting with Does My Head Look Big in This?, which was published in 2005, to When Michael Met Mina, which came out in 2016. So I grew up in the 80s and, um, you know, I grew up on a diet of Babysitter's Club and Sweet Valley High and um, Narnia and um, in terms of sort of Australian fiction, Robin Klein and John Marsden. So it was a real sort of eclectic bunch of books and writers and I was fascinated by books set in America and the UK and desperately wanted to be white, um, you know, blue-eyed, blonde-haired, like the, the characters I was reading and taking into my own life through those pages of a book. I read the Sweet Valley High books as well, just kind of chewed through them. And do you remember how in every 
every novel, they had to have the establishment description where they would describe the twins. Yes. <laughs> five foot six, blonde hair, blue eyes. and they, Both girls they, were five feet six on the button and generously blessed with spectacular, all-American good looks. There was virtually no way to distinguish between the beautiful Wakefield twins. But beneath the skin, there was a world of difference. Yeah, just in case you'd forgotten. Yeah, Jessica, yeah. obviously, she's the bad one. Elizabeth's a good one. Um, how much awareness did you have that those girls were actually completely different from you? Or did you feel like you were them? You know, look, I found my um, a journal that I kept when I was um, in primary school the other day. And I, honestly, every single page of that journal, so I wrote it in grade six, there's a photograph in the corner of um, Kylie Minogue. And I'm actually in that journal writing how desperately I wish I looked like Kylie and how I wish I didn't have curly hair and how I wish I had um, beautiful blue eyes. And so in a sense, I was very conscious of the fact that these girls were different, but but role models, ideals to me, ideals of, of beauty. Um, but whether or not it got me down, whether it affected me in a negative way, the distance allows me now, you know, to look back and sort of analyse what it had done to me uh, long term. But I, I guess then I, I didn't know any different because there were, those were the only books that were on offer. That was the only world that was available. At what point does it turn for you and you think, oh, hang on, I'm actually not Elizabeth. Were you Elizabeth or were you Jessica? What do you think? Oh, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, right. Okay. So I'm not actually Elizabeth Wakefield. You know, I sort of, I literally came of age at the time the first Gulf War broke out. And so it was at that point in year seven that I realized that being an Australian Arab Muslim was kind of no longer an identity. It was an accusation. And that's when I sort of started to I guess, see see myself in that double consciousness kind of way, um, the way other people see me. And, and that was because my coming of age was now coinciding with the Muslim and the Arab being the other in Australian society. It was at that point that I think I started to um, interrogate what it means to be an Australian Muslim Arab and started to realise that the, the books that I was reading um, were now unsettling for me. They were now disturbing me because they were um, either not representing or reflecting my world or else grossly misrepresenting it in terms of the few books on offer or the few sort of representations of Muslims and Arabs in popular culture. Amanda, one of the things that I noticed while I was reading up on you was um, this recurring blurb in a few articles and bios in your books that said that you have that describe your writing as a, quote, intervention into popular culture. And I was really curious by that choice of wording and wanted to get your explanation of what you are intervening into and how you see your work. Sure. Um, I, I feel as though when I write, I... I am happy to wear the label of a, of an activist writer. And I do that proudly because I think all writing, even writers who deny that they are doing so, but nonetheless it still exists. In some sense, you are still trying to um, make a difference, have an impact, say something about the world. And, and I feel very strongly and proudly that I am upfront about the fact that I, I use my writing as a way of performing some kind of activism. And obviously, I mean... There's space to cover a lot of different stories in 11 books, but obviously there's also a range of experiences to the Muslim girls' experience in Australia, the Muslim Australian female experience. So 
What issues are you sensitive to when you're writing these stories? Well, this is one of the the major issues that you contend with as somebody who exists outside of sort of the white normative space on on the margins, which is that burden of representation. So I approach my work and I want to tell the story of a Muslim female, for example, a Muslim girl. And the problem that I often encounter is that um, Chimamanda Adichie talks about the danger of a single story, the fact that there is such a limited um, space available for a range of diverse stories um, that when you present a story, it is immediately fixed as the story of Australian Muslim identity and experience um, because that sort of the, the Muslim female becomes a category, not an individual in their own right. And that's what I struggle with, that burden of representation is the person that the character I am creating, the story that, that I am telling, is my audience going to realise that she is not speaking on behalf of, you know, over one billion Muslims in the world? Um, she is not some archetype or stereotype. She is an individual and character in her own right. That for me is probably the greatest um, thing I have to negotiate as a writer. And why in particular young adult fiction? I think I just fell into it. I've always been fascinated by that adolescent world. And for me, my adolescence is still so visceral. Um, for me, just the identity politics that I went through as an adolescent growing up in the context of the Gulf War um, is still so strong. And having worn hijab and having um, gone to an Islamic school and experienced a lot of racism and having my identity constantly contested and negotiated for me, that is all still so strongly relatable. And the fact that it is happening now again, but in an even more intensifying and escalating climate, is a space that I, I want to interrogate more closely. And I think that writing about young adults is a wonderful way of doing that because I don't know, there's, I don't think there's ever a time in your life when you feel so intensely. I mean, I I never loved or hated as passionately as I did as an adolescent. And I think that that's just a wonderful space to where stories exist and, and can be told. Um, and for me, it is a wonderful audience who really appreciate. And actually, this is what amazes me about our popular culture, whether it's film or, or um, literature. There is this huge hunger for consuming stories that um, push back against the mainstream banal stories that we we see and hear and read every you know every day and i think that for me that gives me so much hope Rhonda abdel fatah telling her story about how she sees writing ya as activism and we're going to graduate now to chiclet with anita heiss you heard from her earlier I'm a Wiradjuri woman from central New South Wales, a Williams from Cowra, Brungle Mission, Griffith and Chermit. Currently live in Brisbane on the land of the Yagra people and I'm a writer by trade and I currently manage the Epic Good Foundation. She's also the author of 16 books. Yes, 16. But when I asked her about what books she read growing up, here's what she said. Well, I get embarrassed to say this because obviously I'm 
published author now and travel the world talking about books and publishing. But I didn't read as a child. I didn't come from a home that had a lot of books in there. We had, you know, the very old Funk and Wagnalls encyclopedias and some Australian New Zealand wildlife encyclopedias. So I didn't grow up in a house where my parents read. My father had English as a second language. My mother um, didn't, you know, was born on a Rambi mission in Cowra. She obviously came from a home with no books as well, although they both supported all their children going to school. Um, so I didn't actually find a love of reading until I went to university and started to having to read about Australian history and so forth and politics and seeing that virtually nothing that was published about Aboriginal Australia was written by Aboriginal people. So Anita is one of those people whose CV is so long, it's hard to describe what she does in a short summary. Advocate, commentator, public figure, author, all of those fit. She's a PhD. She's written nonfiction. So why did she want to write chiclet? a genre which doesn't get a lot of critical accolades. Many people don't, and particularly in the academic or in the literary hierarchy, as you've alluded to, they don't understand that I made a conscious decision to move into commercial fiction because I wanted a broader audience to be reading, thinking and talking about issues that I think Australians should be talking about. So I, in within my commercial women's fiction, which obviously uses love, romance, relationships, friendships, sex, shopping and food internationally to drive a story – interwoven in those storylines are issues of black deaths in custody, the anti intervention, human rights, Indigenous intellectual property rights and so forth. So I thought, how do I get Australian women in book clubs or sitting on the train and sitting on the bus, how do I get them reading about these things? And I thought, well, you have to write stories that connects them with you. And, and what, we, what we connect, the connector is relationships and friendships and human emotions, which we have regardless of cultural heritage, socioeconomic economics, um, geography. And, and by doing that, connecting on a human level, then it's easy to talk about the differences and so forth. So I made a, a very conscious um, writing and business decision to move into that area. Then, of course, I was told, you know, I was dumbing down my work um, and, you know, readers of my nonfiction wouldn't be happy. But I think people miss the point that those books are being read by tens of thousands of people as opposed to my academic texts, which could be read by hundreds of people. Who do you think of as your reader when you're writing those books? I, I just generally think women. I don't have a an age bracket or a geogra geographic. I've learned now that there's no geography is not a boundary because I've had, you know, Aboriginal women in um, remote communities message me and saying, oh my gosh, that's my story. And it's about a woman living in Sydney, you know, dating someone hula dancing in a Chinese restaurant, you know, because they've had a date from hell or whatever. So I've, I've learned, I learned very quickly with the first chiclet novel, Not Meeting Mr. Right, that those experiences of relationships are international. They're not owned by, you know, white women, black women, whatever. But, you know, Indigenous Australians aren't a big enough market to sustain any publishing um, industry. So I know I'm writing stories that I I want Aboriginal women in in, in my commercial fiction. I want Aboriginal women to see some of themselves and some of their life experiences, particularly if they're living in urban centres. I want them to see, oh yes, there's a woman who went to university and there's a woman who works in education or someone who's had children, you know, or whatever, so they can see elements of their own lives. But I want non-Indigenous women to say the same thing. Oh, I'm just like her. A big thank you to my guests, a trio of PhD women, 
Chelsea Bond, Anita Heiss, and Randa Abdel Fattah. If you want to follow them on Twitter, we've put links to their Twitter handles and other information in the show notes on our website, abc.net.au forward slash not a race. Thanks also to Ms. Fran Herman, Principal Mary Verway, and the students of Heather Hill Primary School in Springvale, Victoria, for sharing their favorite stories with us. Hi. <laughs> and thanks also to Buffy Gorilla for her racy Sweet Valley High read. Time for the credits. This podcast is hosted by Beverly Wang. This episode was produced by Leona Hamid. The composers. Oh, sorry. The composer of the music is Martin Peralta. The sound designer is uh, Matthew Crawford. Execute executive. Executive producers are Lorena Allen and Andrea Ho. See ya. But I need access to the dreaming. It's not yours to have. Ah!